In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From Flatlands of Indiana, caribou's not a topic of conversation with your average Hoosiers. Welcome to the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Youngbeck. The National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast is sponsored by Rep Your Water and their 3% for Conservation Commitment. And actually, the guest today is Cindy Stites, um, who is actually a regional committee member for 2% for Conservation, um, which is a certifying organization for businesses that donate at least 1% of their time and 1% of their profits. And the reason that I have Cindy on is because she donates a whole lot more than 1% of her time uh, to conservation causes. And because I've worked for a few different conservation organizations, I've seen how critical volunteers are to organizations like the National Wildlife Federation um, or 2% for Conservation to getting their work done for wildlife. And I know of very few other volunteers as avid and as involved in so many different organizations as Cindy is. Now, Cindy and I um, have known each other online through social media and through belonging to some of the same organizations, but I am here at the Hoosier Outdoor Writers Conference in Indianapolis, and this is the first time we've actually met in person, so I'm excited to meet her, and before I prattle on anymore, I'll introduce Cindy. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for being on. So you're a member then of the Hoosier Outdoor Writers. Yes. And... I'm just, I think that for readers, I think it's, or for listeners, I think it would be best for them to just hear how many different organizations <laughs> you're involved in. Uh, um, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's all right, because the National Wildlife Federation, we're all about, all about collaboration, so we don't need to worry about, you know, some, some other organizations stealing our members, because we like to work with <clears> all <throat> of them. Um, but you work with numerous organizations. Uh, could you list just like a few of the ones that you volunteer your time for? Sure. Um, I work with the Indiana Hunters Ed Association. I work with the Indiana 4-H shooting sports uh, state team. I work with 2% for Conservation. As you said, I'm a regional committee member. Um, I work with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I am currently the Indiana co-chair for our board. I am a newly appointed board member for the International Caribou Foundation as the um, communications advisor. So 
basically uh, preaching the good word about caribou and what we need to do uh, to help the caribou herds. And let's see. <laughs> um, I think, oh, I just got asked today. <laughs> I just got asked today to be on the board, which it will have to be voted on, for uh, the Indiana Turn in a Poacher program. Okay. Um, so that's a basically it's a citizen uh, board that we have in Indiana that works diligently on hunting ethics and taking care of uh, reports of poaching in our state. That's uh, that's quite a list because those aren't just the organizations that she's a member of. Those are the ones that she actively volunteers oh, for, yeah. um, which which is pretty impressive. Um, what led you into volunteering for these conservation organizations? Was it, um, is, is volunteering something that you've always done or is it something that you've gotten involved with as you've become a hunter and an angler? Um, it it kind of came on after I started hunting. Um, and actually it's, it's twofold. When I became a hunter, I gained a greater appreciation for my environment and the habitat and the animals. The more I learned, the more interested I was and the more value I put on those things. Um, before I started hunting, I, I think, unfortunately, I think I'm maybe like a lot of people, I took those things for granted. You know, you drive by the woods and you're like, oh, there's a woods, but you don't know what's in those woods until you go in there. So um, I think that was part of it. As I became a hunter, I became much more aware and I wanted to make sure those things continue to be there for future generations. And then the other part of it is I uh, was at my boyfriend's little girl. She's in shooting sports for 4-H, our local 4-H club. And um, she was at a practice, and one of the instructors for archery heard me say something about shooting a bow and that I hunt. And he approached me about volunteering as an archery instructor for our local 4-H club. To that point, I'd never volunteered for anything. I'm kind of an introvert. I'm not antisocial, but I get really nervous around a lot of people. So I've just never really dove into it. Um, so I told him I'd think about it. And he said it was really important because we have a lot of little girls that shoot archery, but we don't have any female instructors. Okay. And he thought that would be important to those girls to have a woman there that they could work with and you know be able to talk to and get instruction from instead of just having the old guys there that have you know been there for years. So I told him I'd think about it, and he told me when the next meeting was for instructors. And so I went to that meeting, and they explained to me that I'd have to go away for a weekend uh, to a place called Ross Camp and go through certification uh, training. But at that meeting, when I, said, <laughs> when I said yes, I would go do that, another gentleman named Steven Spencer said, so you're a hunter? I said, well, yeah. He said, so how would you feel about being a hunter's ed instructor? And I just looked at him with this blank, you know, kind of deer in the headlights look. And I was like, okay, you know, not even thinking what I was saying yes to. And I said, what do I have to do for that? And he said, you'll go to Ross Camp for a weekend. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time at Ross Camp. But um, that's how I started volunteering, uh, was getting certified to be a hunter's ed instructor and an archery instructor for our local 4-H program. And it's really snowballed from there. Um, I got involved with BHA as a member and then I really wanted to see a chapter in our state so I kind of uh, Ty Stubblefield surprised he didn't put me on some kind of like uh, protection from list because I was emailing him constantly wanting to get a chapter <laughs> in Indiana and now that's up and running and doing well um, 
so I'm still, you know, still involved there. But it's just, it's, it's snowballed. You know, you get involved and it, it's a good feeling and you feel like you're trying to make a difference and then the more you do, the more people ask you to do more, <laughs> I guess. Right. And so far, it's one of those things that you get excited about something and you don't want to say no to anybody. Um, how important is it for um, girls and women who go through hunter's safety or shooting sports instruction like that uh, to have a female instructor like you? Do you, do you see a difference? Is there a, a, an increased comfort level as, as we see um, more women um, involved in hunting? I do. I think so. Um, as far as I can tell, two different instances that I think me being a woman and dealing with the, the, the child in question played a big part. So at Shooting Sports, um, we have uh, a young lady that is on the uh, autistic spectrum and she really struggles. If things aren't a certain way at our weekly shoots, she gets really frustrated and she gets upset. And I noticed that, you know, it's not that the guys don't know how to deal with her, it's just sometimes there's not as much patience. Because you gotta remember, we're dealing with anywhere from 50 to 75 kids every Tuesday night at shoot, and we're trying to get kids through the line safely and get them to shoot. So I just took some extra time to spend with her and talk with her and get her the bow that she was comfortable with. and. Then I got to where each week I'd make sure I check in with her and make sure she had the bow, and and she started to kind of get comfortable and you know open up to me a little bit more. And her mom ended up telling me that you know the time I was spending with her made a huge difference because I was a woman and I kind of had a different way of talking to her maybe than what some of the guys would have. It's just I think I think because I can re- relate to her maybe her emotional side maybe a little bit I don't know. And then the other instance was uh, Hunter's Ed. We had a student that was struggling with tests. And we give the option to read the tests to students if they are uh, having any kind of problems. Or if they have a problem with the test, we can go back and reread some of the questions to them to make sure that they have a comprehension. They, they may not test well, and they may not understand how the, what the test is asking. But if you, ask, if you read it to them, sometimes it, it resonates with them a little better. And I worked with her, and she was she ended up passing, but she was very embarrassed to walk back out to the rest of the class. And I just kind of stood there, and I said, girl, you went out, and you were the first one to volunteer on the shooting range today. That, that's bravery. You walking back into this classroom is nothing. You've got this. You know, all those boys in there, they didn't want to go out and shoot. You stepped up, and you shot first. And I think that made her feel good that a woman was – was talking with her and telling her that you know I was proud of her because she stepped up and did something before all the boys did. So I think I think yeah I th- you know being a woman and trying to get girls involved I think it does help. Is is that something that that you found um, and and maybe it would help if, uh, for reference of folks know um, when you started hunting because you started as an adult. Yes. Is that something that you found through hunting as well that that confidence yeah um and if people have heard my story before i apologize but when i started hunting i was 36 and i had no interest in it Uh, my boyfriend introduced me to hunting and he thought that i would like it i was adamantly not against hunting i just didn't think i could kill an animal but long story short i basically he he kind of tossed me into the woods and said here figure it out i mean he gave me some tips here and there and he kind of walked me through some things when i'd mess up but beyond that, it was a matter of going out and figuring this out on my own, um, which was the best thing he could have done for me. It was a great way to teach me because I'm super competitive. And I had just came out of an abusive marriage for 11 years. So I had had 
every ounce of confidence and self-worth stripped from me, um, who was a pretty confident woman going into that marriage, and now I felt, I felt pretty um, inadequate in every, every way possible. So going out in the woods and figuring this out and learning, and, and each time I went out, I learned something, and each time I went out, my confidence raised a little bit more. And I think being a woman and doing that I want to be a role model for girls that maybe don't have a lot of confidence or they don't feel like they are good at anything. It's for anybody. And I want them to be empowered to go out and do that, that it's not just a man's thing. And I'm not a man hater. I mean, I'm not. I just, I just feel like since so many women are going into hunting, I think girls look up to that and they need that role model. And um, I'm hoping as being a hunter instructor and as, you know, being an archery instructor that I can show these little girls that you guys can do this. You don't have to be a dude to, to sling a bow. You just don't. And that's that's kind of what I'm shooting for. And to more than being a role model for girls, I think also I want to show that there, um, there are women that can be active in conservation organizations. They can be leaders and they can be uh, the people that go out and are a face for those organizations, and I think that helps with the diversity and inclusion. It's going to bring more people in that feel like, well, that's always been a guy's thing, so maybe I don't really fit. But if they start seeing more women out there talking about different uh, NGOs and, and what they've done for Habitat and you know, being a hunter, being an angler, then I'm hoping that will draw more women in. And also, not just women, but you know, not so long ago I spoke at a Pheasants Forever state meeting here in Indiana, and one of the things I noticed, and it was talked about in the meeting, so I'm not saying anything that they didn't bring up, but everyone in that room looked exactly alike. Mm. And unfortunately, they were all middle-aged white men. <laughs> <laughs> and again, not that I have anything against middle-aged white men, but this, today's meeting is today's meeting's like the too. same way. Yeah. It's, a, it's an older crowd. Uh, it's a white crowd, and it's very manly. And... I think in order to keep conservation moving the way we want it to move and to keep the hunting and angling numbers increasing, we need to have a whole lot of people that don't look just like us. I think that's, that's super important. And I, and I think as well, too, um, folks that don't necessarily share the exact same kind of core hunting and fishing kind of rural values maybe, that, that we assume that a hunter has has to have. Are you seeing through hunters' instruction as well, uh, folks coming not just from different genders and races, but different um, viewpoints as far as what conservation is or conservation means or that kind of thing? A little bit. I think that people don't necessarily understand conservation until they really get involved in hunting and go through the whole process. I know I didn't. Um, until I killed my first few deer and went through the process of actually processing that deer and, and putting it in our freezer ourselves. And people would start asking me questions about, well, you know, don't you feel bad killing a deer? And then I got to thinking about, well, even Siani asked this before we hunted last year because she was, she didn't, she's scared. She didn't think she could kill an animal because she's 10. I okay. pre prefaced this with that, but she had the conversation night before uh, opening day of shotgun. She goes, I don't think I can do it. And I said, do what? We had just spent some money on hunting clothes for her. <laughs> and I was like, why didn't you tell us this two hours ago? But her worry was, and I think a lot of people that don't have an understanding, I don't want to kill all the deer. 
And so it, it really makes you step back and think about, okay, well, there are bag limits in place for a reason. Um, it, it is a population control issue. It is to keep the herd healthy. I mean, there's a million things that go into it that your average person that's never been involved in it, they don't know, or they don't, they've never need, needed to know it. Mm-hmm. So, I, yes, I think in Hunter's Ed, we do have a section of the course um, that a fantastic woman comes in and teaches, and it's all about uh, the difference, like what carrying capacity is, and the difference between preservation and conservation, and and there's, it's a whole hour long part of the class that that discusses what conservation is. So, I mean, I've even learned a lot just listening to that every time we have a class. So, people are getting aware of it, but I don't think it's as far reaching as what I kind of wish it would be, because I think a lot of people can can pay into conservation. I mean, your average person that lives downtown Indianapolis could buy a duck stamp. Mm-hmm. They don't have to go out and hunt ducks, but they could contribute to conservation if they had an understanding of what it was doing. Now you're, a, a, as as we like to say, an adult onset hunter. Yes, um, is is the kind of coin word that that goes on now. Um, however, as a hunter safety instructor, are you seeing um, the mythic? Uh, hipster hunter hunting for food because you're actually an ambassador for hunt to eat I am which which promotes that are you seeing that come through your hunter safety classes I don't see it so much in my neck of the woods Um, I'm in a pretty rural county in a rural location but I know I know that there are people who are very interested in the local war movement Um, whether that be you know downtown Indianapolis or in, in counties that have, um, I guess, their hunters head closer to bigger cities like South Bend or Fort Wayne or Bloomington or whatnot. So I, I don't see it in my county. Okay. Um, most of the people that come through my county are pretty rural and it's kids that are coming through and then nine times out of 10, if their parents sit through the class with them, they end up taking the test as well. I see. Yeah, but it's not something they came in with the intention of doing. So you got into volunteering through hunter safety instruction. Um, how did you branch into um, backcountry hunters and anglers and 2% for conservation? BHA, um, I learned about BHA through Meat Eater. I think that's probably the first time I heard BHA mentioned was on a podcast. Okay. And it kind of struck my interest a little bit about who they were and what they stood for. And then, you know, since I live in Indiana, we don't have a lot of public land. Um, it's a very, very low percentage. So I thought, you know, what, what better way to boost uh, the awareness of the public land we do have than to get a chapter here? So that's why I harassed Ty Stubblefield <laughs> <laughs> endlessly um, to get a chapter here. That's how I got involved with BHA. And then um, 2% for conservation, I had um, become 2% certified as an individual. Um, through donating 1% of my time and 1% of my finances to fish and wildlife causes. And then uh, Jared Frazier reached out to me about, um, well, actually I had sent in an application to be a regional committee member and he contacted me and asked me if I would do it about this time last year. Um, We had a good conversation and I still talk to Jared pretty regularly about being careful not to burn out and not to overcommit and because as you can tell I have a tendency to not say no to anybody but I'm getting better <laughs> so that's how I got involved with two uh, percent I like the I like the premise that they're not taking your money they want you to send your money elsewhere they're they're good um, 
about telling you what organizations in your area are are prime for needing assistance, whether it's volunteer work or it's uh, financial help. So that's another reason that I really support 2%. Uh, that, that sounds so familiar. Um, I actually had a very similar experience with Ty um, and helped start the Michigan chapter a couple years ago in 2016, I think. Um, we had a different situation in Michigan where we have a lot of public land and want to keep it. Mm -hmm. um, and actually a similar situation with uh, 2% as well. Um, I'm actually on the, just recently was appointed to the National 2% for Conservation uh, Board um, in a similar role as yours with the Caribou Foundation oh, as an yes. advisor on, on messaging. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I totally support both of those organizations. And even though this is the National Wildlife Federation uh, Outdoors podcast, collaboration is our brand and right. those are two organizations that, that we're proud to collaborate with. Uh, now, the Caribou Foundation, this is new. and you're, Brand spanking new. <laughs> you were appointed to, to their board yes. um, to, to as a communications advisor. Um, what's going on with Caribou? I am super excited to learn more about Caribou. Obviously, from Flatlands of Indiana, Caribou is not a topic of conversation <laughs> with your average Hoosier. So... When I was approached um, by John Lind uh, about joining the board, I was blown away. Number one, and I'm going to be very honest and have a lot of clarity here. I told him specifically, John, I'd love to do it, but I don't know, Jack, you know what, about caribou. And he said, Cindy, I know you can learn, and you're going you're gonna to do what we did. And when we started this foundation, we had a lot to learn as well, but it's something that is very important and we know you can do it and we love the way that you tell your story so we feel like you're going to be able to tell our story very well and that's why we want you and i was flattered by that but it's it's kind of put a little bit of pressure on me because i do have a lot of work to do i've got a lot of learn lot to learn about caribou um i know that there are no longer any caribou in the lower 48 um the last four were moved out into Canada, and I believe there's only one still surviving, a female, um, that has survived out of those four. And I know that there are others that are in dire need. Um, there's a, I don't want, I'm going to probably say this wrong, this goes back to me, I have a lot to learn, but they're setting up a maternity area um, in Canada for pregnant <clears throat> females so that they have a protected area uh, that they can have uh, those um, offspring and that they're protected from predators and that they're somewhat protected from weather so that they can ensure that that herd continues to grow. I know that's a big drive right now to get resources to that. It's going to take a lot of money for it to happen and they need it this spring. Um, if you go to the International Caribou Foundation's Facebook page, there's plenty of information. There's information on the 2% for Conservation page as well. Um, but that, that whole venture I'm super excited about. It's very outside of my comfort zone, but it's very exciting because it's something that needs attention. And I think that there's a huge portion of the population that are very much like me that have never paid any mind to caribou because it was just something so far away. You know, it, it strikes me of how, how amazing it is that in just a few years since you started hunting, you went from a flatland Hoosier <laughs> who, as you mentioned, didn't pay a whole lot of attention to conservation before that and now you have such uh, a concern for caribou of all, of all species for a flatlander from indiana um that you're volunteering your time on their their board what is it about hunting um 
that brought you into that mindset that makes you care so much about wildlife, even one that you can't hunt, um, that, that you donate your time for it? I think, um, and I don't want to dwell on it, but I think a lot of it was my situation coming in as a new hunter. I, I was in a pretty bad place and I will never be able to repay I say hunting like it's a person, but I'll never be able to repay the experience of being a hunter for what it's done for me. Um, it for, not only for my confidence, but it's taught me a lot about myself. It's taught me um, about conservation issues that don't get the attention that they need. And I think it's it's taught me a lot about people. I think there's a there is still a large population that they feel like if they go buy a tag, they are conservationists. And if they buy a license, they are conservationists. And I think we need, and I think that's great, but I think we have to go a step further than that. And hunting, I think it's just made me more aware. It's made me more self-aware, and it's made me more aware of, of what's going on, you know, around me. And with, with hunters being such a small population, I think it's going to take every one of us to step up and give a little bit extra, whether it's our time or our money, <clears throat> to make a difference. And that's what's drawn me to it. It's it. I feel like it's something that just needs the attention, and it's it's obviously very close to my heart now. That that story is something that that you may share coming up. I know that you're going to be attending uh, the National Wildlife Federation's Women in Conservation Leadership Forum. Yes. Um. In in Colorado, uh, what what drew you to attend that, and what do you hope to get out of it? Um. I. I am excited. I looked over the itinerary a little bit, and I'm a little overwhelmed because everything that I see that we're going to be doing is it's exciting. I feel like I feel like I'm going to gain not just knowledge, but I think it's a it's a good place to gain a little bit of empowerment because I'm going to be surrounded by amazing women that are uh, very like-minded but very different. We're all coming from different backgrounds and different walks of life and uh, different areas of expertise and I think probably what I want to take out of it is just um, learning what different causes there are all around us and the the point I believe of the summit is to give us that confidence to to go out and advocate for conservation in a way maybe we didn't have the confidence to do before and so for me I suffer from a terrible case of imposter syndrome. <laughs> I you, never you have to explain that a little more. Okay, so I didn't even know what imposter syndrome was. I had to look it up. But somebody mentioned it to me. I never feel I always feel like I'm gonna be found out. Like I always feel like I'm gonna be somebody's gonna figure out that I don't know what I'm talking about. But everybody's like, But Cindy, you do know what you're talking about. You do this every day. You've put your heart and soul into it and you're you know, you're doing something for a different cause. But I just feel like I'm not doing I don't I feel like I'm not doing anything special. I feel like I'm not doing anything anybody else couldn't do. And I feel like imposter syndrome to me is I'm not good enough to be the person that speaks out on a certain cause or I'm not good enough to you know I was asked to do uh, the keynote at the Indiana State Meeting for Pheasants Forever a couple weeks ago I didn't feel qualified for that but but I think do you, do you mind if I 
interject. Oh no, go here. ahead, because uh, I'm, I'm stammering. <laughs> I don't. No, that's okay. I you go uh, ahead. I don't want to interrupt, but what struck me is that you said you don't because you're not doing something that other people couldn't do, and I think that goes right to the heart of what makes you special. Is because everybody, to one extent or another, could be volunteering their time like this. Everybody could be doing this, but they're not. What makes you special is that you are. You know, that, that's what makes you special, is that when other people see opportunities to give back to wildlife, so many say, oh, maybe I could do that, but I'm going to pass. I don't have time. I, I have this excuse. I have that excuse. What makes you special is you say, I'll do that, and then you put your heart and soul into it, and you do it. Yeah. Um, and and because you're going out there, and several of my colleagues will be out there, uh, my colleague Elizabeth Lillard actually helped. Uh, um, it was really her idea to, to start the Women in Conservation Leadership Forum, and I know Marsha Brownlee, who's been on the podcast before, uh, who, who manages the Artemis program are out there, and I can't wait for them to find out, find you out. <laughs> right, right. I can't wait for them to find out about you. And because what you have from volunteering so much time to do this to mentoring new hunters, you know, so helping to solve one of the biggest crises in wildlife right now is the lack of hunting participation yeah. and the funding that that brings. And so you're diving in and volunteering your time there. You're giving your time to species you don't even hunt in a country you don't even live in. <laughs> no, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> right? um, but and, it's exciting. It's that, exciting to learn. To and it's exciting to, you know, it's exciting to pass that information on to people because it's something that I bet none of my friends know anything about caribou. I mean, nobody in Indiana does. Very few. I mean, I know a handful of people that have ventured off and hunted them but it's a very very small handful so i i don't know i i sometimes i feel um i feel really awkward on social media like on my instagram account my facebook account i always talk about what i'm doing as far as volunteering and i i i want to make it clear i'm not sending the message that i go hey look at me i'm sending the message that guys anybody can do this anybody can volunteer i i i can't preach that enough and i think if, if, I, if I want to do anything on my social media, it's to inspire more people to volunteer. But there's, there's a balance, too. I mean, you know, my boyfriend has <laughs> most recently said, where are you going this weekend? <laughs> so there, I've got to learn that I have to narrow down uh, my scope. Mm-hmm. And I've got to be more selective about what I do. And I think I've, I think I've narrowed it down pretty well now. Um, I've got a few things that I'm going to have to step away from that I'll be making those uh, announcements in the next week or so. But, um, I think you still have to give your time and you still have to, even if you just want to talk about it, to bring awareness to it, that doesn't mean you have to go out and spend hours and hours volunteering. But, but, you know, if you find a cause that you really care about or you think is interesting, um, spread that on your social media. Make people aware of it. You'd be surprised how many people would go, oh, I never knew that. And then that might get them interested. So so I don't promote what I'm doing as a volunteer because I want a pat on the back. That's the last thing I want. Let's go back to that whole um, introvert thing. I don't want I don't want I don't want people to know my name. I want people to go do what I'm doing. That's what I want. So I, I've narrowed some of my focus down to my local like my 4-H shooting sports. 
and my hunter's ed, those two organizations are in dire need of volunteers. So I've made a decision that that's where my primary focus is going to be because I can make the biggest impact and I'm working one-on-one with people that are right in front of me and I can see those people kind of grow through the process and that that's really important to me and mentoring too I took two young men mentor out on their first squirrel hunts and their first deer hunts this year and I hardly hunted in Indiana this year and I got more enjoyment out of this season taking those two boys out than I think I've probably ever had hunting for myself so it's critical let's uh let's pivot then into hunting like very specifically because you're an avid squirrel hunter Oh, and I love, love and, squirrel hunting. And, and I love your social media <laughs> feed because I don't get out as often as I'd like to, but I love squirrel hunting. I love what I can make from squirrels, from food to uh, using the tail to tie new streamers. Um, tell me about squirrel hunting. What, what well, do you know about the funny thing about squirrel hunting is I just started. I started squirrel hunting long after I started deer hunting. Um, I don't. I don't really know what intrigues me about it other than I just wanted to try it. So. Last year, um, I don't know, probably after I was done deer hunting, so probably sometime in late November, early December, I told Chance, I'm like, let's go squirrel hunting. So we went out and tried it, and uh, I killed my first squirrel, and I was over the moon. And then I found out that my dad was actually an avid squirrel hunter when he was younger. He lived for it. I mean, that's, that's all in him and a buddy of his did. That's all they talked about from the beginning of squirrel season to the end. And he was also an avid rabbit hunter. And um, I never knew this my whole entire life. I never knew that my dad was a hunter. So it was, it almost felt like squirrel hunting was meant to be for me because, <laughs> because I, I didn't know my dad had such a passion for it. And I enjoy it. It's just so much fun. And I will tell you, I'm not going to say every time I went out and deer hunted this year, but almost every time I went out, I abandoned my deer hunt and started squirrel hunting. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Which, you know, I feel bad because I didn't fill any of my Indiana tags, but I was either taking one of the young guys out that I was mentoring, or I'd stop deer hunting after like 35 minutes because there were squirrels everywhere, and I'd run to my truck and grab my 22 and go back in the nothing, woods. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. A few years ago, Jason Meekoff, uh, who's a regional coordinator for mm-hmm. BHA, yep. and Bob Bush, uh, and when we were all on the board of the Michigan chapter at BHA, we did a uh, backcountry bear hunt in the porcupine mountains of the upper peninsula and uh, jason and i had bear tags and then all three of us had deer tags and uh the lack of sign of any sort of of those three and of course we were also trying to still hunt with bows um yeah i gave up on that really quickly once i started seeing squirrels pop out and i started hitting uh squirrels with my bows uh, with my arrows and that is the only thing that any of us uh, successfully hunted yeah. uh, that weekend, and uh, we we roasted them over the campfire, which was uh, a delicious way to hunt to eat, as it were. Yeah. So the cool thing about squirrel hunting that I, what ended my year last year, um, and I wanted to do it this year, and unfortunately I couldn't. But I asked my dad to go squirrel hunting. My dad, the last time he hunted um, was about 50 years ago. Mm. He quit hunting because my oldest brother Tim, who's he's 13 years older than me, but he was five or six. He went out squirrel hunting with my dad, and when my dad got ready to shoot a squirrel, my brother freaked out. And he's like, you can't kill it. So my dad felt, my dad was like, well, that's what we're here for. And my brother just had a meltdown. So my dad quit hunting. And it was something that was the most important thing to him up until my brother. So he felt guilty that if he went out and did that, and he had to lie to my brother about it. So 
fast forward, you know, he's uh, 78 at this point, and I said, why don't we go squirrel hunting? And he was like, oh, well, I don't know. A few minutes later, I'm at his house. This was, I think it was at Thanksgiving or Christmas. It was at Christmas. A few minutes later, he shows back up in the kitchen with his old 22. I'm like, Dad, what is that? And he's like, well, this is the 22 that I squirrel hunted with. He bought it when he was 18 at a gun show. Still had the same scope on it. He told me that he had cracked, uh, he had cracked the butt of it by cracking a squirrel in the head <laughs> when he was younger. And I, lo and behold, he went squirrel hunting with me like a week later. And so it took 50 years for my dad to go hunting with one of his kids. And it happened to be his daughter, who was the youngest. Oh, that's amazing. And that day, so, meant, so that day meant more to me than anything I've ever done. And I will never, there will never be a hunt that I do, you know, and I've said this before, people talk about dream hunts and, you know, people dream about hunting caribou and elk and moose and, you know, whatever this big dream hunt is for this huge animal. And, and I have my, my dream hunts done. I mean, I got squirrel hunt with my dad and my dad's always been my best friend. I mean, he's always been the most important person in my life. So to do that was, there won't be anything that tops it. That's amazing. He, he gave up hunting for his son and 50 years later, he started hunting again for his daughter. Went back out with his daughter for the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going to top that. <laughs> um, folks, be like Cindy. Volunteer for wildlife conservation. Um, take the, the, the lessons that she's already learned and, you know, be judicious. Put your time where you can invest it without getting spread too thin. But volunteer. Get involved. Um, whether it's as a hunter safety instructor, as, as she is, um, whether it's one of with one of these nonprofit organizations, and we'll provide the, the links to their websites in the show notes, or uh, a local conservation organization where you are for a species that, that you enjoy. Um, and not only that, but take your parents hunting, take your kids hunting, take somebody new hunting, and uh, also be like Cindy and go hunt squirrels. It's fun. It's, it's great. Um, Cindy, thank you so much for being on the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors podcast. I'm so excited for you to meet some of my colleagues out at the Women in Conservation Leadership Forum. And I'm even more excited for them to meet you um, as a representative of the hunting community. Um, you, you make us proud. Well, thanks, Drew. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.